Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. What are the five lies of our anti-Christian age? Well, I'm excited about the conversation I get to have with Rosaria Butterfield. She's an author. She's a pastor's wife homeschool mom and former professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University. Uh, She's the author of several books, including The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Openness Unhindered, and The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and the book that we're going to get to discuss today, which is Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Before we get to that important conversation, I just wanted to share with you an invitation to pray, to pray for the body of Christ. You know, as we look around There's challenges of culture, and things continue to increase, and a lot of temptation today to lose heart in doing what is good, for the church to shrink back in the face of adversity and challenge, and for believers and disciples to wilt underneath that pressure or become discouraged. But I want to invite you to pray for our churches, that first and foremost, that we would keep in step with the Holy Spirit, that we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we'd be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that we would see people having God's heart for the lost. Second, pray that we would be bold in the gospel. Romans 1.16 says that, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Pray that we would be bold and have a heart for the lost and those who need Jesus. Pray that we would be seeking opportunities, interceding for people in our communities, in our schools, in our churches, in our workplaces who need the gospel, and the gospel transforms. Third, pray that we would be faithful in our churches. You know, every generation faces a particular intersection of faith and culture, challenge and opportunity, and, you know, we don't get to pick which one of those we get to live through. Uh, Right now, there's a lot of sexual confusion, a lot of ideologies that are leading to a lot of confusion and heartache and pain, especially among the youngest generation as they grow up in this. So pray for faithfulness in churches, especially clarity as we talk about high-minded things raised up against the knowledge of God, like 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 talks about. Pray that the body of Christ would um, lead the way in fearing God and giving Him glory, and for people to flourish according to God's good design and commands, especially uh, the children. Many of them are being manipulated and confused, and we want a generation to find the hope and life of the gospel, because at the end of the day, God's Word and God's world match up, and God's good design and commands are for our good. You know, here's how we talk about it in Impact 360 in terms of what does it mean to flourish as a human, especially when it comes to humanity and sexuality. We believe that God has a good design for all creation, including humanity. Humanity is made in His image, and therefore both male and female are equal before God in dignity and worth and beautifully distinct from one another. God's revealed will for human flourishing is for each person to live in accordance with God's creative declaration of one's biological sex as male or female. God's revealed will for human flourishing and sexual behavior is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. God's revealed will for human flourishing in heterosexual marriage is a covenantal union of one man and one woman seeking each other's highest good in a lifelong relationship. 
And that's what flourishing looks like in the area where our culture is very confused right now. And finally, pray for the body of Christ to be and have an attitude of deep joy amidst the challenge. You know, as, as the body of Christ, we do not need to be fearful. And pray that our lives and our brothers and sisters around the country and around the world would have a deep joy, and that our lives would be marked by deep joy and hospitality. Yes, challenges are going to come until the Lord returns. And until then, we proclaim Christ crucified and risen from the dead for our victory, for our salvation, and for eternal life. And so it's vital that we continue to do that. So let's pray. Let's not lose heart. Jesus is risen. And yes, there's a lot of pressure right now and a lot of confusion, but join us in praying for the next generation. Join us in praying for the church in these key areas and pray for the body of Christ that we would be found faithful to the task that God has set for us. Well, without further ado, let me get to our conversation that I had with Rosaria Butterfield on her new book, Five Lies of an Anti-Christian Age. Rosaria, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jonathan, welcome. I mean, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, <laughs> and thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, thanks for taking the time. I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, just because it's so, I think, encouraging and timely and challenging in the right ways because it's so vital. So thank you for taking the time to write it. But before we get into the the book and the and what you share, you know, talk about the story of you becoming a follower of Jesus and how that kind of led you to a moment like this. Yeah, yeah, because that is really important. Otherwise, I just kind of sound like I'm on a rant. Unfortunately, what I'm on is on a mission because this is the world I helped make. So um, when I uh, met the Lord Jesus Christ, I had been working as a tenured professor of English, women's studies, and queer theory at Syracuse University. I had been uh, recruited and uh, hired and mentored and then tenured to launch a gay and lesbian studies program and in many, many ways to make homosexuality look wholesome, which unfortunately I think I pulled off. So wow. I, um, I wrote books, I taught students, I spoke before the New York legislature, I wrote policy. Um, I was not just your lesbian next door. I was a gay rights activist. Um, and I did all of that because I believed that I was gay and I believed that gay is good. And I had no idea why people like you just couldn't leave consenting adults alone. Apparently, you hadn't gotten the memo that we live in a society that is diverse. And uh, I was baffled by you all. And so um, after my tenure book was written, I started a book on the religious right, basically trying to figure out why, you know, People like you all couldn't put up with the person I used to be. And in the process, I met a, a Christian pastor, neighbor, um, and pastor's wife, Ken and Floyd Smith, and they became like my parents. Um, I read the Bible through seven times in two mm -hmm. years under their direction. It, at first, because I was just fighting with it, I, I just wanted the right ammunition. Um, I'm a reader. I'm an English professor, so that... I. You know, I, for, I've made a, a career out of reading bad books and dining with sinners on both sides of the line. So that wasn't that wasn't very <laughs> different. Um, but in uh, after two years of, of pretty intensive study and meeting with Ken and Floyd and probably having 500 meals at their house and meeting their family and their church. And, you know, and I I just realized a couple of very basic things. Jesus is who he says he is. He is real. He is risen. He is alive. His resurrection means something. And that would be true whether I believed it or not. 
you know, the train had left the station. It did not really matter. I mean, it mattered to my soul, but it didn't matter to the truth of Christianity, whether Rosaria was, you know, for you or against you. And so, um, so I committed my life to Jesus and then, um, then things got really hard. Uh, you know, I was tenured in queer theory, like, how is that going to work? And really what, what was the Lord going to do with my, at that point, persistent lesbian feelings? You know, what did it all mean? And so, um, so that's when things got really hard. Um, but I will tell you that hard isn't bad. Um, hard is very good. Um, hard can't, especially when you have the Lord, the creator of the universe working through, uh, you know, working, working on behalf of you as you seek to grow to be like Jesus. And so, um, uh, you know, that was decades ago. I have been, um, I mean, it was kind of funny to realize it recently. You know, you get you get old and you're like, oh, everybody else noticed you got old and you just didn't. But I have been married, biblically married to my 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 wonderful husband, who is also my pastor now, for almost as long as I've been a Christian. And, you know, that definitely shapes, obviously, wow. the way that I enter into a discussion about homosexuality in the gospel. And so... Um, so did the Lord answer all of my questions? No, but he answered all the big ones, all the ones that mattered. And I, while it has been hard, it has been well worth it because uh, every life in Christ is worth it. Because th what the cross means, among other things, is that there is meaning and there is purpose and there is grace in your suffering. And that is good. Um, but there's also a great joy. And I have found it to be a great joy to be a, a biblically married woman, to be a mother, now to be a grandmother. Um, I love it. And I think the Lord knew that I was always designed to be this because the creation ordinance matters. Even, even when in our sin, we rebel against it, or even in our sin, when we just don't like it, it still matters. It's still bigger than we are just and it's all, that's a very good thing. So I don't want to ramble on except for to say that I wrote The Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age because a lot of moms and grandmas started writing to me at my website or stopping me at Costco and saying, what's going on in the world in the church? Why can't we major on the majors anymore? And I realized, well, I kind of have a dog in the race. The, the problems that we see are the problems I helped create as a gay rights activist. So I don't get a free pass. But I also realized something else. It was really hard uh, decades ago to fight the sin of homosexuality. It's an indwelling sin that has a lot of power, a lot of power over your sense of identity, over the, the sense of who you are. But when I was fighting this sin, it hadn't become our nation's reigning idol. We didn't have gay pride month. We didn't have, you know, people weren't losing jobs over not putting, you know, rainbow stickers up on their Facebook page or not using false pronouns. And what would it be like, I asked myself recently, to fight a sin that isn't just an extremely powerful indwelling sin, but also our nation's reigning idol? And that's what Christians need to realize. LGBTQ plus isn't just one identity among many, one sin pattern among many. If the Lord tarries, our days will be remembered in the infamy of Moloch. And so when people write to me and say, I have a prodigal, 
and she's stuck in this place. I realize I remember that place, but I know it's so much harder, so much more dangerous now. Not bigger than the Lord, but it's extremely important that Christians know what time it is so that we can fight this in the right way and rescue uh, image bearers of the Holy God, because that's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't isn't just some kind of nice therapy that makes you feel good about your 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 brokenness. I mean, I don't want to feel good about my brokenness. <laughs> I long to not be broken. Um, mm. The gospel gives you rescue, and we praise God for that. We want that for our prodigals and our neighbors and our loved ones. Yeah, Amen. And I just love I love the beautiful story of transformation of the gospel in your life been so encouraged by that over the years and i know you hadn't i think i think i remember hearing you you it's like yeah i'm done writing i'm gonna go kind of be be done with this right i did i did and now you got a got a book coming out (laughs) or it's out now it's out yeah (laughs) so you had to and and so i think that's vital and it's it's a gift of clarity you know one of the things i think um if you wouldn't mind share a little bit about maybe um i think you talk about three reasons and five lies yeah. So maybe yeah. maybe let's just start with um, the three reasons first okay. and just say sure. kind of why is that important to understand about where yeah. we're at? And then we're going to get real in particulars and the lies. And what do we do about them and, and all those things? But OK, but talk about the three reasons. Three reasons. Right, right, right. Because that's a basic faith and reason question. So I, I as a you know, as a professor, I I do believe that God gave us brains. We should probably exercise them and um and while we might just say, well, in God's providence, here we are, that's true. But there are some breadcrumbs that we need to make some sense of that we need to reason about this. So the first reason that I have noticed is in, among broad evangelicals, there's a rejection of the Old Testament, either in, in whole or in part. Mm-hmm. And what, that, what happens when you do that? is you fail to understand the Bible as a unified biblical revelation. You fail to understand that the seeds of the gospel are in the garden. The embryo of the gospel is in the garden. No Adam, no Christ. So if you want to unhinge the New Testament from the old, as Andy Stanley has said, uh, and, and, and other heretics, that is, that is like the first move of the heretic. If you want to go to Heresy 101, First thing you're going to do is say, well, the Old Testament is law. We just have gospel. Well, we have no gospel without the law. You have no Jesus without Adam. It is a unified biblical revelation. So the seeds of the gospel are in the garden, which means that the creation ordinance tells us who we are as people. Um, in all in, in, in all of our um, uh, sin and, and trouble and, and all of the ways we mar that. And so what that basically means is that you are made in the image of God, um, uh, Genesis 1:27, as a man or as a woman. Those are stable, ontological and eternal categories. And furthermore, God is not some kind of like mad engineer that builds a bridge that falls off into nowhere. God made us male and female for a purpose, and those were creational purposes. That is, by necessity, a heterosexual paradigm. Now, and so what I mean by that is you cannot say, well, I'm made in the image of God as a lesbian, or I'm made in the image of God as a trans asterisk, non-binary, you know, pick up, pick up one of the 78 gender pronouns. And the reason is simply this. 
um, being made in the image of God being made is means being made in the knowledge and the righteousness and the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that is understood creationally. Hmm. Um, be, uh, calling yourself gay or experiencing experiencing same-sex attraction, experiencing uh, hatred for your your genitalia, um, experiencing transgenderism, that comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So there's no such thing as being made in the image of God as a gay person. So the first is the seeds of the gospel are in the garden. We are creationally made. We need to understand that. And even in our sin, we need to understand that. The second is the church needs to know what time it is. You know, you need to know what time it is. And what time is it? We are post-Abergefell, post-Bostock. Those are Supreme Court decisions that have changed the moral landscape. Hmm. Um, we need to think about this theologically, and we need to think about this politically. Theologically, Romans 1 offers us three exchanges. Um, the exchange of truth for lies, the exchange of the worship of God for the worship of the, cre the creature, and the exchange of heterosexuality for homosexuality. And a, a culture that grows in those things, a culture that grows in lies, idolatry, and homosexuality, is a culture that is not blessed by God, but rather condemned. That is a very serious thing. And what you saw in both the Supreme Court case of uh, Bergefell 2015, Bostock 2020, is this codification of those three exchanges in Romans 1. Uh, now, the, 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 the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage in all 50 states, but it did so by claiming that any rejection of gay marriage is animus, hatred. So it, it wasn't claiming to add gay to the marriage question. It claimed to correct a, a problem of animus. That's a big claim that is insane, and we let it pass. Uh, also added to the Obergefell decision was the dignitary harm clause. That redefined what harm means in the context of LGBTQ+. So when I was a lesbian, I would have considered it a harm, Jonathan, if you were a pizza delivery guy and you didn't deliver me a pizza because you didn't want to because I am a lesbian. Okay, that is uh, very different than what we have today where people are claiming, where the Dignitary Harm Clause claims that you are harming people if you fail to affirm their dignity. Now, just hmm. think about that for a minute. When I met Ken Smith, First thing he said to me is, Rosaria, I can accept you as a lesbian, but I don't approve. That's very helpful, that distinction between acceptance and approval. But a, a, a demand of affirmation of identity makes that sort of thing impossible. So knowing what time it is is really important. Mm -hmm. And I would add one more thing to this, and that is the Bostock decision. That, that added, especially transgenderism, it added LGBTQ+, to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That's what allowed the Biden administration to redefine Title IX, allowing biological men to play in women's sports and be in women's locker rooms. That's also what, what created the 2021 uh, mandate 
from the Biden administration to create an anti-bullying program that is in every single government school that uh, teaches advocacy for transgenderism, um, which is producing all kinds of other things like the transing of children. And I'm not kidding. I don't make this stuff up. I speak before school boards. I deal with this kind of thing all the time. So we can dig into the weeds of that. But that's very serious. So know what time it is. And this is where Christians always say, oh, come on, Rosaria. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Nothing can stop God. That's true. But um, if you live in North Dakota, I guarantee before you go out running, you check what the weather is. God is not constrained by these things, but we are. So know what time it is. Um, and then the third is a lack of love. Hmm. Christians just don't want to love their enemies anymore because they're very happy, it appears, just pretending your enemies are your friends. Christians have decided that just because your neighbors who identify as gay are the nicest neighbors on the block, uh, they have enough common grace, they don't need Jesus. Um, when, when I was a lesbian and I was hanging out with Christians, quite frankly, I'm very glad that they weren't traitors and cowards and hypocrites, like I'm seeing the broad evangelical church behaving today. Mm. They loved me enough to tell me the truth and to sit me at their table and to walk me through uh, what it means to repent of sin, to die to self, and to pick up my cross, to follow Jesus, and to be born again. And they said, Rosaria, a born-again Christian isn't gay. No, we don't want you to help us create a gay, you know, bowling league in our church so that we can all, we can all humanize being gay. No, the idea is to be born again and to not be gay. And, you know, that, that's, so that's what the gospel says. Mm -hmm. Now, does it mean that your feelings like zap? No, I, that's never happened to anybody on planet Earth that I know of. But am I a happily married woman? Am I grateful to be uh, here and not there? Absolutely. We grow mm -hmm. in sanctification. We measure that by the fruit of the spirit, not by our feelings. Um, so those are the three yeah. reasons. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. And that's a good backdrop. And we'll get into the five lies in just a moment. But one of the things I know you share this in your book, you also wrote an article about this where you kind of chose to repent publicly from okay. using, say, pronoun hospitality or pronouns in a certain way. Can you talk about why it is you felt that was important to do? And, and yeah. what was the distinction that you were trying to kind of unearth there and right, get out right, there. right, right. Well, so I was a gay rights activist. Um, one of the people very significant in my conversion was a biological man who lived as a woman uh, named Jill. And uh, uh, I only knew Jill as Jill. I, I didn't know that Jill's real name was Matthew until I inherited uh, uh, an entire theological library. You know, so this is someone who was a, a Presbyterian pastor for years um, and an indwelling sin got the best of him. But I only knew this person as Jill. So it, it, it's part of my it, it's sort of like, you know, I, I just thought it was totally appropriate to just meet people where they are, except, you know, part of the acceptance approval, I thought, was you just meet people where they are. And you just use whatever name they tell you and whatever pronoun they tell you and who cares and what's the big, what's the problem? And, um, and I mean, you know, as a, as a conservative reform Presbyterian pastor's wife, it's not like I mix with a lot of people where I get to do that a lot, but it was just, 
as as I would interface with the world, that was just my approach. And I thought it was missional. I thought also I know for a fact that there are multi, you know, so many comorbidities in the in the transgender community. Like why exacerbate somebody? Why antagonize somebody? Just don't destate, you know. So so those are all of my reasons. Um, and then I started noticing people losing their jobs. Losing their jobs for failing to use transgender pronouns. And the Lord really convicted me that um, it's just, it's a, it's a violation of the ninth commandment. And these are no longer, this is, these aren't just words. This is ideology. You know, I have a thesaurus sitting on my desk. Nobody's going to sue me if I flip through it and use, a, you know, exchange one word for another when I'm looking for a good adjective. But if I got fired for using one of those adjectives, I would know, hey, those aren't just words. Some of those words have the, the, the law behind them, and that's an ideology. So that's when I started to realize, hey, this is really wrong. And I thought, well, okay, I'll just course correct. It's like, great, congratulations, Rosaria. You're still, you know, you're not too old to learn a lesson. I'll just course correct. And so that's what I did for many, many years. I just stopped using preferred pronouns. But then I was reading in um, Thomas Watson's book, The Doctrine of Repentance, and I ran across something pretty terrifying, and that's that um, course correction is counterfeit repentance, and it's a sin, and it's, it's Achan in the camp. Remember um, in the book of Joshua, the, uh, the warrior who had stolen some booty, and he, and he dug, it, dug a hole and put it in there, and, and all of a sudden, God stopped blessing uh, Israel, just stop blessing. And, and, and I would say God has stopped blessing the church right now. I don't think the church is a force in the world that we want it to be. And I was just deeply convicted by the Lord that I'm aching in the camp and that I have been sinning for years. And even if I stop, like in my personal life, okay, I stop using preferred pronouns. Well, I've used them in books that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies. So in order for me to get out ahead of what I've done wrong, I need to repent. And it needs to be public, not private, because the sin was public. And so in Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, I repent of about four or five public sins. But I did write an article that was published in Ref 21 uh, in April, where I wanted to really highlight the transgender issue. because. I am hearing from broad evangelicals and, uh, and especially from parachurch ministries like crew, for example, you know, Oh, you know, we're going to be missional. Don't, you know, we're not, we don't, uh, words are words. These are my, this is my vocabulary. That's your vocabulary. Well, if that were true, then Peter Vlaming over in Virginia would still be a French teacher, but he lost his job because this is not just vocabulary. It's ideology and Christians need to tell the truth. And then I, I, I was reading in Miriam Grossman's book, Lost in Transnation, because I was just kind of curious. I know this from a theological position. I know it from a cultural apologetics position. But what is the psychiatric model? Like, is it bad to call somebody? Like, is it, am I being cruel? If I, somebody walks into my church, obviously, a, you know, a dude in a skirt, and, and am I being cruel if I don't, pretend what what would a psychiatrist say about it and so and and this is not you know Miriam Grossman is not a Christian she's not she's not 
She's not coming into our territory. And she said something fascinating. She said that 20 years ago, she too would have used, you know, transgender pronouns. But today she can't, not for moral reasons, for therapeutic reasons, because the first step in um, doing self-harm, the first step that you would take before you become a medical patient for, for life and you castrate yourself or you, you, you know, have a double mastectomy and hysterectomy is something called social transitioning. And the first step in social transitioning is a new name and pronouns. And so from a therapeutic perspective, she cannot go there. She cannot start that path because once you start that path with somebody, you can't turn them off it as easily. And so I thought, wow, okay, Christian, wake up. You, this, is, this is neither moral nor is it kind. But what I've been really interested in, Jonathan, you can tell me if this is this is your experience. Um, I'm baffled. Now I'm not on social media, so I mean I know I am on social media, but not for but not because I put myself there. I don't have a Twitter <laughs> account. I don't do that kind of stuff. But I don't have time. But um, I am baffled by how offended Christians are by my public repentance. And I mean, come on, come on, Christians. If 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 repentance brings you to your, you know, to a place of shock and awe. Look, it should not be shocking that Christians repent, forgive, and reconcile. Hmm. And the moment that that becomes shocking is the moment that I think we're talking about different gospels. The gospel that I follow has, you know, I don't measure up. The Lord Jesus Christ measures up for me. So as long as I'm alive... I should be repenting, forgiving, and reconciling. And if, and you know, furthermore, I would say, what business do I have as an evangelical Christian calling my unbelieving neighbor to repentance if I'm not doing this myself? So, uh, you know, I think this is normal. Although in my Ref Twenty One article, I call out a lot of other Christians who need to repent of this also. And I say, okay, I'll go up first. Who's next? And just to let you know, crickets. Mm. I, I'm, uh, I'm uh, Jonathan. I'm not a trendsetter, apparently. <laughs> well, not yet. Maybe we'll see. You never know. <laughs> but wow. Yeah, no, well, I appreciate that explanation because I think that's just helpful, especially given your journey, your story about why, because people are like, well, I have these good intentions. I want to do the mm-hmm. nice thing. I want to be kind. How do we be appropriately biblically empathetic versus sympathetic versus kind of, because I think people want to do and feel certain things. Yes. But talk about the important distinctions yes. about doing what we intend to do, actually. Yes, we want to do the right thing, but our intentions need to have biblical foundations because we, you know, this, this Bible is not only inerrant, it's sufficient. And it actually knows me better than I know myself. I can trust it. I can trust it on, with every detail of my life, inner and outer. But um, yes, I do talk a little bit about empathy and sympathy in the book. Uh, Joe Rigney talks about it even with much more intelligence than I do. Should anybody want uh, to have something that goes deeper than, than you know Rosaria here? But um, and I'll say empathy means it's a relatively new word, um, like 1973-ish, and it basically means stand in someone's shoes, stand in someone's shoes and feel their pain. 
And sympathy is a very old word. It's a very ancient word. Um, and it means stand outside of the problem and um, exercise compassion with, with passion. In other words, you recognize there's a problem and then you try to fix the problem. So, you know, so you would use empathy and sympathy for different situations. The situation would determine that. There are some places where it is totally appropriate to sit quietly with someone and just let them grieve. That is, and that is empathy and that is very good. But if I am drowning in a river, Jonathan, I don't want you to jump in and drown with me. Thank you very much. I want you to throw me a rope. Hmm. And that's what the gospel does. But we have become so overtaken with the idea that empathy is always good and sympathy is always, you know, mansplaining or it's, you know, it, it's controlling. And that's ridiculous. And, and I, you know, I do speak at the Durham uh, school board meetings and I, I, um, I, you know, I speak about transgenderism and parent, parental rights. You get your three minutes. And if you talk a lot, you can talk to them a lot because you get lots of three minute speeches, just break it up a little bit. And one of the things that I was really struck by one, at one meeting, um, uh, you know, uh, the board kept saying, just hold my space, just hold my space. And I had to like text somebody young and say, what does that mean? And it basically means don't fix my, don't try to fix problems, just, just experience this. And finally, I said to the boy, I said, excuse, you know, excuse me, but aren't, aren't you the school board? Aren't you here to fix problems? You know, so I think mm. what happens is if you think that you have to always empathize or the way I heard it recently, I think Preston Sprinkle had this, let's humanize the trans experience. Okay. Humanize, simply, you know, empathize, these things go together. When the actually, no, people need rescue. People actually need help. It is the medical analog to transgenderism is anorexia. Mm. Um, that is, those are, it is a dangerous, sad, tragic thing to have a, a, a profound hatred of your body and not to be able to function without wanting to harm it. Um, Christians are not barbarians. We don't think we need to humanize that. We don't think you need a sticker in a parade. We think you need rescue. Um, and it might be medical rescue. I mean, you know, Andre Von Maul is a, he's a, a California uh, family practice uh, physician and somebody who testifies before the le legislature a lot. And he said to me recently, Rosaria, if you could have the physician and the, and the pastor and the counselor all in the same room, we might be able to do something. So hmm. I absolutely, I'm not, Christians don't throw people away. I am not saying hold these people up as examples of what not to do and throw them away. No, they need to be rescued. They need the gospel. And the gospel is very sweet to detransitioners. The gospel mm. is very sweet to people who have harmed themselves in the name of trying to help themselves and now realize that in Jesus and in the new Jerusalem, they will be the man they were meant to be. They will be the woman they were meant to be because you can't mock God. So but it is the gospel and it may be additional things to the gospel like medical care and therapy, but um, empathy will not get you there. And this mm. idea that what the world needs is just everybody to feel the same mucky feelings is anti-gospel. And it's created a kind of um, complex uh, civil war 
within broad evangelicalism. And that is why I do say uh, there are many people in this broad evangelical movement with whom I do not share a religion. So don't please do not say that we're spiritual siblings. Do not call. I mean, we may someday, because everybody that I'm talking to is alive. So that where there's life, there's hope. But mm -hmm. the gospel gives you rescue. No, I appreciate that distinction, and that's so important. And I want to come back to a way to apply that in a little bit. But I do want to get to just list your five lies. Okay. And then I would love for you to kind of walk through kind of what you see. And and honestly, maybe maybe start by how they relate, because I, I think yeah. in some ways they all kind of connect. But They do. Um, lie number one is that homosexuality is normal. Lie number two is being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. Lie number three is feminism is good for the world and the church. Lie number four is transgenderism is normal. And lie number five is modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. So I'm sure there's a backstory about how all these things kind of coalesce and you, you could, how they relate, uh, but maybe kind of maybe you can talk about that for a second, but then let's just kind of walk quickly through each one of those lies and I have some other questions I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the ways that all of the lies coalesce is that, is that they all rely on a false biblical anthropology or a, 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 a counterfeit idea of what it means to be human. Now, interestingly, all five of them rely on a feminist paradigm that says sex and gender are different. That is not a biblical paradigm, but it has been with us for so long that it is almost impossible even for Christians to keep their head about them. So just, you know, tighten up your chin straps if you need to. I, 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 believe me, I'm, I, I've worked this out. Um, so the reason I know that sex and gender are not, are not different is that God never creates a pattern without a purpose, right? God is not a mad engineer. Every pattern has a purpose. The pattern of maleness and the pattern of femaleness is creational, be fruitful and multiply. That is a godly pattern. And so to introduce gender as a new category of personhood, um, separate from bio biological, but the biological category of sex, is usually done for two reasons. One is um, to pursue additional callings. Like, for example, look, I'm a woman, but Jonathan, I'm really smart, obviously articulate, and I'm just too busy, you know, the whole baby thing, that's going to, you know, that's a little bit beneath me, Jonathan. I do have a PhD, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, my gender, my call, I have, I have a biological sex, but I have multiple callings in the world. And they're going to take me from that. And you have to defend that or you're just, you know, a terrible patriarchy, you know, advocate. Um, so that would be one, one way is that you have to defend my right to my callings that are separate from my biological hmm. sex. The other is a very interesting transgender moment, right? Which is, um, no, this is who I am. I was born in the wrong body. The whole biological sex thing is not ontological or eternal. It's assigned. I was assigned 
female at birth. And so what you really see in transgenderism is that it has simply taken feminism to its logical conclusion. So let me just read something by Pastor um, uh, Pastor Christopher Gordon in uh, his very helpful little book, The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. Um, and the question is, aren't we able to make a distinction between biological sex and cultural gender in our search for identity? And he says, no, no. God established a natural order in the creation of male and female that is good for us as image bearers of a holy God to introduce gender as a new category of personhood separate from the biological category of sex in pursuit of different uh, you know, jobs or callings as well as different sexual identity is unnatural to the creation order and harmful to the purpose for which God made us. Now, you might ask at this point, but what about the Proverbs 31 woman? She had a lot of jobs outside the home she did. And, you know, newsflash, so do I. But the jobs that a Christian woman ha has outside the home are jobs that are meant to feed the home. They're to funnel into the home. If they start to suck the home dry of something, that's not good. And then also I would say as a, as a, as a woman, I can only have one head right? My husband is my head. I can't, uh, you know, my, if my boss and my husband are conflicting, I, I, I have got to find a new job. And so, so that's the other thing that, that, um, so I would say the three, the, the, the one thing that connects all five lies is a false separation of sex and gender. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea that homosexuality is normal works on a very anti-creational idea. And we just talked about it in the beginning, the yeah. idea that you can be made in the image of God as a gay man or a lesbian woman, and you can't. You can repent of those sins and be delivered for sure. The second, um, that pagan spirituality is kind and biblical, is um, you know, is is harsh. It works from this idea that the creator and the creature are not distinct. That 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 all is one. And as Peter Jones from Truth Exchange points out, again, much more much more articulately than I do, you, that's not biblical. So you, you, you can, you know, you can sort of twist your idea of who Jesus is in a kind of first John four one way, but that doesn't mean that it's real. Um, so the third, that feminism is good for the church and the world, that was really based on this idea that, um, you know, women have a calling according to their gender that's different from their biological sex and that if we don't protect that that um that we don't basically protect women from progeny and patriarchy then you know abuse will run rampant in the church and yet i would say just the opposite is true the most important place for any woman to be is a member of a true bible believing church with pastors and elders who know how to drive the wolves out of town because we know that we don't believe men are good we believe men are evil all men men and women uh you know we believe that that total depravity is real and that's why we need godly men to protect the church and the family from these truly satanic influences and that leads to the fourth lie that transgenderism is normal. Quite frankly, if you don't like biblical patriarchy, how do you like transgender patriarchy? Because mm. that's what you see today. There's a natural order. Men will be in charge. Do you want the godly men or do you want the, the, 
the, the ones driven by a satanic idea of, um, of personhood. And then the fifth, the idea that modesty is bad works from this idea that men and women aren't really different. You know, we're just comrades for Christ. We don't, we're just brothers and sisters in the Lord. We can, you know, we don't need to respect. And that's just, that, you know, that's led to all manner of challenges. What women are called to be um, kind to their brothers and to, and to dress modestly um, so that they don't cause their brothers to stumble. And, and, and you brothers are called to re- protect our reputations. And, um, and, and those are two very good things. They are complementary. They work together. Um, but yes, they do support the idea that biblical patriarchy is good and needed and necessary. And that there's a place for, you know, that again, Christians don't throw anybody away. So what should single women do? Well, single women, as young women, should be um, uh, part of the church, being blessed by the ministry of the church and being protected and being uh, counseled in appropriate, um, you know, educational and, 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 you know, choices and, and tying in with the church and tying in with the family. A single woman is still an aunt and a, uh, a sister um, and then as they get older, as a single woman gets older, you are one of the mothers of Israel and you need to step, step into that role. Uh, you, you can, you can encourage, uh, women in a Titus two way, uh, both through experience, but also just through the knowledge of the Bible. And so we are in great need of single men and single women who, um, uphold their place in the creation ordinance in the family of God and in the natural family. Mm, no, that, that's really, really helpful. How has that kind of message been received? You know, we live in this culture in terms of, especially like, you know, people would say, well, didn't feminism start out as a good thing? Like there was some good idea. And so how did it get off track? And then, you know, so it's kind of splintered off and done different things. But then I guess, how does the biblically discerning person, first, how have they responded to kind of those kind of thoughts and teaching, but then also how do they discern, okay, that's consistent, that's inconsistent as an application? Right, yeah. Well, I would say, you know, don't listen to me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even seminary trained. I'm an English professor. I know how to read books, and, uh, and I do. I read a lot of them. And then every six years or so, I seem to write one. But don't, <laughs> you know, don't listen to me. Listen to your pastor. Take, be a Berean. Take all of these things and, uh, you know, let the Word of God really saturate them. But and, and I'll tell you, the other thing is I tend to think that where everybody thinks the same, nobody thinks very much. So if everybody started agreeing with me, Jonathan, I'd wonder, like, you know, do I need a third cup of coffee? What's going on? <laughs> you know, um, so, no, I get I always get a lot of pushback uh, uh, for my work. Um, but I would say this when I get pushback that goes like this. Oh, Rosaria added to the Bible when she said that um, women are made to be nurturing and men are made to be strong providers. I'm just saying that patterns have a purpose. I'm just saying that Genesis 1:27 is for real. And anyone who has cared for children knows you need a good, a, a, quite a hefty range of nurturance and, and patience and just a genuine love for these little people and, and their big problems. Little children have big problems and, to be to be nurturant in those moments is is huge and 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 you know I'm I'm pretty uh, I mean I I homeschool and I I um 
I do a lot of my work from home and I, I have raised my family and I have a grandson and my children's children all like to hang out here and they still need some raising. And, and I, I think that that's probably been so much more important than any book I've written. I mean, really, I can do about 100 useful things before seven o'clock in the morning in my home just because I'm mom. Like no other reason has nothing to do with whether I'm educated or even showered, but I'm mom mm -hmm. and that, that matters. So, so, um, you know, so I do get, I get a lot of pushback on the feminist fronts. Um, um, and you know, the two, the, the book has two appendices at the end. One is how to read the Bible, because I think it's important. I mean, I think that, you know, if you are reading the Bible from a feminist lens, you're already ditching inerrancy. You're already getting half the Bible. You need, I need the whole Bible. I'm a whole sinner. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I, can't, I can't do with, you know, a, a, you know, a little, a little rowboat and my toothbrush as an oar in the storm called 2023 America. I need the whole Bible. So, um, but the other section is, is parents, you know, parents of prodigals, the help they need. Um, Parents of prodigals are the people that I, you know, I pray for, I'd say probably the most at this point. I talk to the most because they really need to be encouraged to stay connected to their loved one without becoming indoctrinated by false teaching. And so, um, so yes, I, I would say I get a good bit of pushback um, and I'm okay with that. Because I don't think this is the smartest book on planet Earth. I know it's not because I wrote it. <laughs> but I wrote it because I tried to answer the question that people asked me. Mm -hmm. If Christ is not divided, why is the church? Why can't we major on the majors anymore? Why does it feel like we all live at ground zero of the Tower of Babel? And we can't even talk to each other anymore. And what does moving forward look like if that's our situation, if that's my situation in my church, if that's my situation in my family, what does it mean to move forward? And so I made my best attempt to answer the question. If I did a bad job, go write a book and tell me your best attempt. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't mean that yeah. in a cheap way, but I don't, I don't mind pushback. I love pushback, yeah. which yeah, is good because no, I... I get a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's a constant. It's constant. The gift that keeps on giving. Right? Exactly, exactly. Keeps show, keep showing up, you know. And so, you know, I think this might be helpful. You know, in terms of the acronym, that dominant acronym we see today, the LGBTQ, all of that. Um, obviously, in your um, experience, when you were a professor, you did a lot with kind of queer studies and ideology. And I think of that acronym, that may be the most foreign to some people to understand. Even they're saying, "Well, well, an L, I get that, and I guess I get the B." But what's what's the queer like? Why is that? And and what were you trying to do then? I guess that's having the effect it is now because I think that's the one that almost gets less headlines than all of them. But it's underneath so much. Oh, it's huge! It's huge. Okay, so queer theory was born out of post-structuralism and post-modernism, and that would be a very kind of very post biblical anthropology and it in it, it what, one of the things that queer theory did in the gay so you had gay and lesbian studies and queer theory came and said look we don't like this born this way paradigm because it doesn't it doesn't take up the trans experience 
okay? Because obviously there is not even one cell in the body of a person who identifies as trans that was born this way. So it's, it's not inclusive in that way. But it also feeds right into this Freudian paradigm of, of disability or illness or, or um, you know, disease. And we all think gay is good. We don't think we need to be fixed. And then I'm from a generation, I'm 61 years old, so I, it was not popular, right? So, I, you know, so I, I'm always on the wrong side of history, people. Look at it that way. Um, <laughs> but I, I, um, I, you know, I came of age in a paradigm, especially for women, uh, that was really encapsulated by Adrian Rich, who was a, a, a well-known poet, lesbian poet, and English professor at the time. And she wrote an article called Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Existence. And one of, the, one of the reasons I raise that is most of the women in my lesbian community had had heterosexual relationships before coming out as lesbian. And many of these women had children from former marriages. So we didn't see ourselves as bisexual. I didn't see myself as bisexual, although I had had relationships with men. I, in my 20s, I dated men, and I was always in this odd situation of dating men and falling in love with women. That can ruin a date pretty quickly. I, you know, I mean, I just, you know, I didn't understand it, but I didn't think I was gay. That was weird. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be abnormal. I was just sort of waiting for these feelings to happen. I didn't realize how tied up they are in, 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 um, in God's understanding and me understanding how God understood me to be. I didn't realize that those feelings would only come after I understood myself as God had made me. So that's kind of a, its own story. But, but we never called ourselves bisexual because we weren't having sex with men and women. We had had a heterosexual past because we believed that it had been socially compulsory. So queer theory encapsulated all of that. It brought in the lesbians of my generation who had children from heterosexual marriages but were not bisexual. Um, but it also brought in, it also had um, something we thought to offer the gay and lesbian movement, especially during the AIDS crisis. Uh, so that's, you know, this is the picture of the 1990s in New York. I mean, just picture it. It was ugly. It was sad. It was tragic. And it was, there's a lot of activism and when I tell people that I honed the hospitality gifts I use as a pastor's wife in my gay community, I'm thinking about those days of New York and AIDS activism. Those were, and you know what? Even as an unbeliever, the Lord puts eternity in the hearts of all men. Going to funeral after funeral where there is no hope and is no promise is devastating. You don't want that. You don't want that mm. for anyone. Um, and so what queer theory did is it became a very, we thought, very helpful umbrella for all of these different voices so that we, we understood that we did not have unified agendas, but we did have a unified political reality. And we felt like queer theory very much organized that. Hmm. Um, and the way that you see it today is especially in the transgender movements um, hyper focus on personal choice, um, a kind of hyper focus on self invention, 
and the need for everybody to affirm my self-invention as true. And so it's queer theory that allows that to stick because anybody would say, now, wait a second, you can invent yourself any, any which way you want, but I don't need to think it's, why do I need to think it's true? Well, it's queer theory that gave the overarching um, paradigm for that. So it's quite a powerful force. And Christians, and, and here's what I say to Christians. I, I personally do not think you need a PhD in queer theory. I, I, in fact, I really don't think. I think what you need to be is sanctified. And that means you can be sanctified in your knowledge and you can be sanctified in your ignorance. So if you have a prodigal, who says I'm non-binary, you are perfectly legit in saying, please tell me what you mean by that. And not only are you legit in doing that, you need to do that. I mean, there are currently 78 gender pronouns and there will be more by the time you air this episode. So how do you keep up with this stuff? Well, a good compassionate way to do that is if you're sitting down with somebody who's confused, have them explain to you what they see when they open their eyes. And then you can work with that. That's really helpful because I think sometimes people wonder about that acronym. They're like, okay, well, how do I, where does this fit? And why does that, yeah. these things seem to pose and contradictory, but now the T yeah. seems really large and the other letters yeah. are really oh, yeah, small. Yeah. yeah. You know. Well, the T is really large because the allies of the gay rights movement of my generation have become the groomers of the trans child movement of this generation. Mm -hmm. And that's really serious. But if I could just say one thing that I, parents really need to hear right now is one of the most powerful things you can do as a parent is to hold your child's history, to keep it. Don't throw away, don't throw away the pottery and the pictures and, and in, in both the gay rights movement, but especially the trans movement, um, they insist that you throw these things away. They insist that you call them by these new names and new pronouns and you have nothing in the house, no baby pictures, no quote unquote dead naming, all this. And just the opposite is true. Just the opposite is true. Now, you know, maybe if your kids are like my kids, they produce a lot of pottery and artwork. You might need to buy a pod at this point to keep that. <laughs> but you really do need to keep that. And I have, I have watched people's families be reunited under the powerful gospel of Christ, in part because those parents, faithful, broken, mm -hmm. wondering if this was ever going to get worked out, parents were keeping, holding these, the history of these children. And when these children, especially if they're detransitioners, when they're coming back, that reality is so crucial. The baby pictures, the birthday pictures, the, the dresses, you know, the, just the, those just those little mementos that you have of your children, that I have of my mm -hmm. children, don't no one should throw those away. And friendship is really important in this. Also, I talk about a story in my book where I met um, a biological man at a speaking event and he wanted a grandstand and I wanted a cup of tea. So I figured maybe he and I could sit in the office of the pastor and I could we could both have some some tea or coffee and I could hear what was going on. And when we started walking back to the pastor's office, so it was at the end of a long speaking event, and it was kind of the last question in the Q&A. And this was a person who identified as a transgendered woman. Obviously, it was a biological man. And when I invited him to come and talk with me, he was very happy to do that. So it's not like we were 
oppressing anyone. So as we're walking back to the pastor's office, um, somebody charges us and, you know, security gets all involved, like, what's going on? And the person uh, looks at the transgendered, quote unquote, woman, the biological man, and says, you know, Jim, what happened to you? And the, the transgendered person, uh, you know, says, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not Jim anymore. You know, I'm Beatrice. And, uh, and then the person used a uh, delightfully inappropriate word to use in church describing his rejection of such ideas, best use of a curse word I've heard in a long time. <laughs> and, um, and then they recognized each other from like, you know, I mean, they, they connected because they were connected. These two men had committed their lives to Jesus together in the same church years ago. They had both worked as truck drivers. They, they had gone to each other's weddings. They knew each other's children. And the, the kind of burly guy with the inappropriate language just kept pressing that and saying things like, where's your wife? Where's your children? What do you mean you're happy? And, but, you know, and so when we all went to the pastor's office together, we had a complete, we had a nice complete picture. And so we could very quickly move forward in helping this person who was biologically male, but lived as a woman. I mean, because we had history. Mm. And, and boy, this pastor, that pastor and those elders, they really did. They, they moved on it. They were so useful. And, and my understanding is that this person now is living, you know, as a man and is, is or at least is kind of coming back. It's not mm. an easy go. It, a detransitioner's life is not an easy life. The church needs to be ready. But having somebody who had his history made all the difference in the world mm. because that history is true. It, it's lived and it happened. And what there's a, so there's a selfishness in transgenderism that says, well, no, it's my history and I can throw it away if you want to. But that's just not true because we are interconnected. My history and your history are, are connected. Those parents have a, a, as much of a stake mm -hmm. in the history of that child as that child has. And so, so there's a real selfishness in um, and, and because there's a real narcissism in all of the letters that make up the alphabet soup. Mm. And with narcissism, there's an infantilization because sin infantilizes people. Sin makes people immature, selfish, and, um, and always wounded, you know, mm. always hurts, never healing always needing you to feel their hurt, but that's not a good way to live. That's a terrible way to live. Yeah. It doesn't matter what your worldview is. If you have a boo-boo, you know, if my grandchild wants it fixed. Yeah. We want to be done with that. And yet what transgenderism does, oh, Preston Sprinkle wants to humanize transgenderism. Well, it makes you a medical patient for life. And the Gothic nature of those medical procedures should give anybody pause. Any mm -hmm. Christian who thinks that you're helping somebody by, by handing that person a sticker and a parade 
nobody would do that to its medical analog anorexia. Mm. Nobody should do that now. The church needs to be ready for, ready to receive and minister a gospel hope to the people who have mutilated themselves. Because, you know, all conservatives want to do with these people. I've seen it because I'm at, I'm at the legislature, I'm at the board meeting. All they want to do is hold up pictures of their mutilated bodies and point to those pictures as examples of what not to be. But Jesus never does that to us. And if you think the detransitioners are in bad shape, can you imagine being the father who thought it was a good idea to castrate your 14-year-old son? How do you live? You want to talk about suicidality. Mm. Well, I can tell you the population that you're going to need to be dealing with. There is gospel hope even for that man. But we need to be clear-headed about the difference between empathy and sympathy mm-hmm. and clear-headed that the gospel comes with change. My husband is a pastor. He works closely with the rescue mission. Can you imagine if he brought some men who have been homeless and drug addicted for 40 years a gospel that wants something like this. Oh, God loves you, but he's not going to change you. In 99.9% of the time, God never changes people's feelings. I mean, what? Hmm. Who would want that gospel? Yeah. So yeah. the church needs to wake up. And quite frankly, the wolves, this book is meant to put the wolves on notice. I might just be a cranky grandma over here in Durham, North Carolina, but I know who you are and you are not the real deal. And mm. you need to go find a desk job. Stop messing around in the church. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And so many, I mean, there's so much in there that's so helpful and so needed to hear. You know, I, I think, I mean, I speak on this sometimes and moms and dads will come up after and, and my child say, my child has come and they want me Maybe give them some practical advice because they're like, my, my child wants me, they're an adult, say they're 19, they're 20, yeah. and yeah. they want me to call them by this new name, this new identity, the new pronouns, and I want to preserve the relationship. They're in tears. They're like, I don't want right. a, a dead daughter. I want a live son. What All those things. Right. How would, how would you encourage them to just practically navigate that relationship right. with their child? Right. Absolutely. And the you know, first thing I would say is you might not want to listen to me. Go ask your pastor, ask your elders. Those are the people who are really, those are the people who are shepherding your soul and the soul of your children. And so I'm just going to give you my, you know, kind of aerial viewpoint here. But um, my strong suggestion is you read a book by Laura Perry Smaltz called From Transgender to Transform. She lived as Luke for over a decade. During that time, her very faithful Christian parents refused to call her Luke, refused to use her pronouns. And when the Lord changed her heart and she returned to the faith and she became a strong Christian, she also returned to the church of her youth, to this little Baptist Mm -hmm. church in Oklahoma where nobody called her Luke and nobody used her pronouns. And a lot of people have asked her, but why did you do that? Don't you want to be missional? Don't you want to help all those other people? Don't you want to go work with these parachurches? She said, look, I didn't. These are the people who never lied to me. Why would I return to the liars? I now know the truth. And so I would just, I hold that as an example. Now, you know, how long did those faithful parents hang on? Over a decade. Was it hard? I Yes, it was very hard. Mm-hmm. But they clung to the truth. They believed John 8, 
31:32 that you abide in the truth and the truth will set you free and the truth will set your children free they did not they did not um tarry with these parachurch ministries that muddy the waters and say well sometimes you should do yeah and sometimes you should no no now here's what's always true and you know this as parents you never need to say everything that's on your your mind at the same time you don't have to say everything that you're thinking you can be discreet you can be gentle um you can withhold things i mean that you know i mean within reason i don't mean being you know willfully deceptive but parents are allowed to you know to, to be to be uh, sensitive to their children um i would not say i understand that at 19 you're a legal adult but i will tell you that i do a lot of parenting of my older children uh that and it's and it sometimes is more rigorous than when they were toddlers um mm. so older children still um need some help a lot of help and so don't don't think for a minute that that frontal lobe is is closed and and don't be blackmailed and if you are blackmailed you get to you you know you always have the throne of grace which is where change really happens but don't don't allow yourself to be blackmailed and by blackmailed i mean you know when the you know when the lesbian therapist says would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son you say i do want my children to be dead to sin and alive to christ now maybe you don't say that aloud but you know that you know that your child needs to cut off certain things it's just not healthy body parts but you do know that that child because mm -hmm. i need to cut off certain things and you need to cut off certain things so you you know those things um mm -hmm. but uh, and that is also why it's extremely important to make sure that you are in you parents you parent of a prodigal are in a strong bible believing church. Yep. Please do not be in a mainline mess right now because 30 years ago you got married there and they're nice to you. There is no room for sentimentality. This is war and you are fighting for the soul of your child. You need to go find people who know how to fight a war. Not create a mess in their church. So if you're in a dead church because you've always been in a dead church for the sake of your child you need to go get to a real church mm -hmm. a faithful a church that actually knows yeah. biblically speaking according to the book of revelation that we are the church militant until we are the church triumphant we are not the church triumphant yet this is not glory you know get to a church that knows what time it is you know i've i've wondered about this and i love your perspective you know i remember you know, we talk about we we never see ourselves getting older, which is funny. You know, so but but I remember when the conversation, nobody had really started using terms like LGBTQ plus community like that that moniker. And I've wondered now, it's like, should we continue to say it that way? Because are we just because we there's mutual contradictions within it, but then. Because I think people wanted to do it to dignify and to do that, maybe well-intentioned at the beginning, but I don't know that that's serving us well now. But yeah, what yeah. are your thoughts on how yeah. we should talk about them moving forward? That's, that's a great question. And, you know, I don't know, uh, Beckett Cook and Christopher Yuan were really, they were really needling me about this at one of our, you know, we, we're the three musketeers and we have these fun conversations. Um, um, you know, I started using that term in the 90s um, because there was a sense of coming together around the AIDS crisis. Um, mm. 
But as I think Beckett or Christopher pointed out, you know, it's a community that hates itself. It's a community that hates its bodies, that that, you know, hates the people it claims to love. And so don't use community. So I need that's probably the, the you know, thank you, Jonathan. That, that'll be the next big repentance article is my constant use of the word community. One thing that I think is true, though, is uh, there the differences between the L and the G and the B and the T and the infighting among the 78 gender pronouns shows that it's not a community, not in any any real sense that we would come to understand. And the use of the word community, I can see how you, I had not thought about it, but I think you're right, that it kind of makes it seem like, um, like a kind of decent, you know, like the, I don't know, you know, the optimist club is a community and the, you know, uh, you know, 4-H is a community and kind of people who, but, but I think that what I, what I think is true about it is that it has been politically savvy in, in, in positioning people so that the needs of the L and the G and the B and the T, which are very different needs, have been met by some political moves, um, you know, in the last 50 years or so. But I agree with you. I think I should just go face down on this and repent for using that and say, you are right, Beckett's right, Christopher's right. <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll get asked by youth pastors or like, okay, should I teach on, say, homosexuality? I'm like, well, here's what we need to do. We just need to teach on everything. Right. Because sexual morality is a broad term. We need to offend everyone equally. Right. And the gospel is good news for everybody. Right. And and so and so I wonder, it's like, well, you know, using terms like, well, you know, sexually sexual confusion or, you know, transgender ideation or transgender anxiety. I'm just wondering, like, what are the better ways to just not in, in the same way that you and I wouldn't say, well, we don't want to use cisgender. It's like, I don't want to right. play that word game. I don't right. want to concede that because words right. shape containers. And then the reality and the conversations happen within the words. Absolutely. And so I'm just wondering, even moving forward, I agree. what does that counter yeah. narrative need to be? I think, I think you're right. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go face down on this, Jonathan, you are right. I, I'm going to try to get that word out of my, out of my system. I do think it's a political movement though. And I do think LGBTQ plus is an idol and it is an idolatrous movement. And so I, I am more comfortable talking about LGBTQ plus idolatry. But within that, we need to recognize that it has been an effective political movement. And, and you know, really, even just the slogan, love is love, uh, was a very effective tool in creating what the gay rights movement needed to push through um, uh, gay marriage, and that was heterosexual allies who would say things like, who am I to judge? Or, you know, love is love, you know, and it just, and, and, uh, and it's, it's interesting the way even that slogan has morphed through the ages um, to keep uh, that, to keep that movement alive. And, and also now it is just very intriguing to me. You have not heard that quaint little expression, leave consenting adults alone, in mm -hmm. over a decade. And so that's how you know it's an idol. And that's how you know the target is children. Because um, show me the trans child. They don't exist. The trans child is, as Christopher Rufo has said, an invention of an evil age. 
but it has become the totem, you know, like a boar's head on a stick that all the natives march behind. Mm -hmm. You know, that's yeah. what it is. And um, yeah. and it's obscene and it's yeah. barbaric. And Christians who don't defy it are obscene and barbaric. It is not enough to say, you know, well, I don't know what I th I don't know what to think. You know, I kind of punt, you know, like mm, conservative, mm -hmm. but I, you know, we, we can agree to disagree on this. No, you, you, you can't yeah. agree to disagree about whether your pastor is a wolf. <laughs> yeah. And, and even just the idea of just, you know, when Jesus, you know, said better that a millstone be tied around someone's neck than yes. cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so yes. we work at, with the next generation, there's always a new generation coming. And I'm just like, let's protect them. It's like, even right. if we need to just lock in the conversation of 18 and under for now, for a while, just to go, okay. Yeah. Consenting adults conversation coming later, but at least yeah. can we get enough common ground and momentum on what's happening to kids yeah. Yeah. that we can at least protect and try to be faithful yeah. um, to help them and navigate that well. You Agreed. know, there's so much conversation, the time's flying, but what last, last question, you know, just, or maybe a way of encouragement, like what would you, you know, sometimes people can be tempted to lose heart when things are hard or challenging. And we live in, nobody asked for this movement in this cultural moment in Acts 17 and God's providence. This is where we're at. This is where we're called to be faithful, but maybe give, kind of a little encouragement. I know you're a joyful person. I've seen that through you over the years and I, we want to be people of deep joy, but maybe say a word yeah. about that, even yeah. in the midst yeah. of yeah. storm clouds that we're kind of walking through. Right, right. Yeah. So this is, we're, we're, we're recording this on a Monday and we had probably 25 people here yesterday after church. I stopped counting at about 23. I mean, like it was the kids and the, and the psalm singing and the mm -hmm. prayer and the food and the more food and you don't even want to know what my kitchen floor looks like. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I had ambitions to do something about it, but other things, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it was, there was such joy. And yet everybody at that table had such heartache. I mean, people came from all different places. I mean, from dealing with, the suicide of a loved one and the illness of a mother with many children and the kind of shipwreck of divorce. There wasn't one person in that room who left to their natural devices. I mean, apart from like being medicated <laughs> would have been joyful. And yet, the laughter and the joy and the psalm singing and the prayer was because we remind each other, and this is what we need to do. We need to, we need to tell the right stories to each other. Jesus has risen. And in the power of our resurrected Christ is meaning and purpose and hope in the cross that you have to bear. You know, probably it was one of the people there who is in the in in dire straits. Truly, brought a van load of unbelievers to church and then to my house. Like, like who has the bandwidth to notice that whatever you're going through right now, you believer, you whose soul is secure in Jesus Christ, whatever you're going through right now, there are people who are perishing. And they need you to throw them a rope. And maybe if we all 
if we hold your ankles, if you dip over the ledge to do that, maybe we can do that. But we need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And when he returns, he will return as our judge. Um, and we are okay. But there are a lot of people who aren't yet. yet. But it's so important to put the, you know, to put our swords down and to eat good food and to, uh, you know, let the teenagers jump on the trampoline, have, making sure that the, you know, the small children are safely removed from it, <laughs> uh, you know, and, um, and, to, and to belly laugh because we're going to be doing a lot of that in heaven yeah. and where all of our tears will be dried. Amen. But we need to take each other to the throne of grace with joy, with great joy. Um, and, you know, one way to do that is to be really selfish about your Bible reading. Give yourself as much time as you need. Be selfish about it. Read your Bible and don't mop your kitchen floor. <laughs> hmm. um, and, and just let the word seep into your heart and soul. Hmm. Meditate on it. Pray through it. Pray with each other. Pray for each other. Know each other well enough to know where it hurts. And open your arms wide enough to draw others in. Because we are victors in Christ. Love that. That's such a good word. Um, so many, so much, such a good word. You know, we need to have soft hearts, clear minds, and just recognize the joy that comes of who Jesus is and the victory we have in him and the hope that we have to come that's rooted in history. And so thank you for that. You know, if you're listening to this and, you know, you've got kids, family members, friends, if we can help in any way to Impact 360, we want to do our best to be faithful. We're going to be faithful to teach scriptures. We're going to help disciple students. We're going to help them walk out and live in this post and anti-Christian age. Um, the gospel is good news. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. This stuff's really true. And because of that, it changes everything. So if we can be helpful to you along the way, and whatever our programs, gap year, fellows, summer stuff, uh, propel immersion, residency, you know, you can, look, you can learn more about that at impact360.org. And we'd love to come alongside that. But Rosario, thank you so much for, for being with us today and just sharing your time, but sharing your passion, your challenge, your encouragement with us. It's just been such a gift. My pleasure. And thank you for all that you do, Jonathan. Lord bless you. Thank you. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.